You must have heard the story of Alexander the Great and his astronomer Anaxarchus. When told by Anaxarchus that there were an infinite number of planets, it is said that Alexander wept. When asked why, he said, Isn't it a tragedy that, with so many planets, we are not yet masters of one? Now, each time I hear that story, I wonder, isn't it a triumph that, knowing there are so many planets, humanity chooses peace? Hello, my name is Geraldine Goeskolar. I am adjunct associate professor of law at the National University of Singapore. My topic for today is the international law relating to the military use of outer space. I will touch on four aspects. First, the international law applicable to the use of outer space as a military theater, including measures aimed at disarmament and arms control. Secondly, the law governing the international transfer of military-grade space technology. Thirdly, the law relating to the use of force in outer space or the use of vellum in outer space. And lastly, the law of armed conflict or use in bellow in outer space. Space technology was a phoenix that rose out of the ashes of the Second World War. Fueled by strategic and political concerns of the Cold War, dominance in the outer space theater was considered by the Soviet Union and the United States crucial both to their success and to their prestige. A good three-quarters of the satellites launched during the Cold War era were for exclusively military purposes. That percentage has fallen to about one-fifth as of 2015. Although cause for celebration, the number is still somewhat misleading in assessing the significance of the outer space arena for military and strategic purposes. The 20% of satellites that are exclusively for military use does not include dual-use satellites nor does it reflect the fact that commercial satellites have been used for military purposes for the better part of nearly three decades. An example is the purchase of commercial Iconos and spot observation data by the United States National Reconnaissance Office for use during the 2001 war in Afghanistan. Another example is that the majority of satellite communication systems used for military operations during the 1999 conflict in the former Yugoslavia was purchased from commercial entities. Perhaps the most visceral example of the significance of the military use of outer space is the 2007 anti-satellite weapons test performed by China, which produced some 70% of the space debris that can be tracked today. That test, the latest in a long line of anti-satellite weapons tests by China, the former Soviet Union and the United States, was particularly notable as it came after a nearly 20-year moratorium on anti-satellite weapons testing. Debate in the United Nations General Assembly on the military use of outer space began with the launch of the world's first artificial satellite, Sputnik 1, on the 4th of October 1957. The former Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc states advocated general and complete disarmament in outer space, whereas the United States and its allies argued for partial disarmament. After long discussion, it was decided in 1958 that the question of the peaceful uses of outer space should be considered separately from the disarmament issue. In 1963, the Partial Test Ban Treaty was concluded, obliging states' parties not to carry out any nuclear weapons test explosion or any other nuclear explosion in the atmosphere, underwater or in outer space. Despite the fact that the Partial Test Ban Treaty was limited to nuclear tests and therefore the actual use of nuclear weapons fell outside the scope of the treaty, it was a major step forward in the international discourse of the disarmament of outer space. 
That same year, the United Nations General Assembly adopted Resolution 1884, which calls on states to refrain from placing in orbit around the Earth any objects carrying nuclear weapons or any other kinds of weapons of mass destruction. Installing such weapons on celestial bodies or stationing such weapons in outer space in any manner. The text of Resolution 1884 was later incorporated in the 1967 Treaty on Principles Governing the Activities of States in the Exploration and Use of Outer Space, or the Outer Space Treaty. In 1966, the United Nations General Assembly adopted Resolution 1962, which was to later become the text of the 1967 Outer Space Treaty in total. The Outer Space Treaty declares outer space to be res communis omnium, a global commons that is the common heritage of mankind. Article 4 of the Outer Space Treaty prohibits the placement of objects carrying nuclear weapons or other weapons of mass destruction in Earth orbit, in outer space or on celestial bodies. Article 4 also provides that the Moon and other celestial bodies shall be used exclusively for peaceful purposes. Now, the term exclusively for peaceful purposes was not defined in the treaty. As a result, many different interpretations of that term emerged. Specifically, much of the debate centered around the issue of whether peaceful purposes meant non-military purposes or whether it instead meant non-aggressive purposes. The first view that peaceful purposes meant non-military purposes rested on the argument that any military activity could only serve as one state or one group of states and that this would be contrary to the provision in Article 1 of the Outer Space Treaty that outer space was to be used for the benefit and in the interest of all countries. Moreover, there was the argument that Article 4 of the Outer Space Treaty had been modelled on the equivalent provision in the 1950 Antarctic Treaty, which demilitarised the Antarctic zone. Advocates of this view supported a total prohibition on the use of any space-based asset for military purposes, including the use of satellites for reconnaissance. The latter view, that peaceful purposes referred to non-aggressive purposes, supported the possibility of military use of outer space and on the celestial bodies, insofar as not specifically prohibited by Article 4 of the Outer Space Treaty. According to this interpretation, the exclusively peaceful uses of outer space is imposed only for activities on the moon and on celestial bodies, but not in void outer space. Advocates of this position rested on Article 2, Paragraph 4 of the Charter of the United Nations, noting that international law only prohibited the use of force in, and not the military use of, outer space. State practice clearly shows that, despite the debate on semantics, outer space is routinely used for military purposes. For example, the United States officially acknowledged the use of military satellites as early as 1978. Another major step was taken in the international legal framework relating to disarmament in outer space, with the 1977 Convention on the Prohibition of Military or Any Other Hostile Use of Environmental Modification Techniques, or the NMOD Convention. Articles 1 and 2 of the NMOD Convention prohibit states' parties from engaging in military or any other hostile use of environmental modification techniques having widespread, long-term or severe effects, including in outer space. Two years later, in 1979, the Agreement Concerning the Activities of States on the Moon and Other Celestial Bodies, or the Moon Agreement, was concluded. It reiterated Article 4 of the Outer Space Treaty and prohibits any threat or use of force or any other hostile act or threat of hostile act on the Moon. 
Significantly, Article 1 of the Moon Agreement provides that reference to the Moon includes orbits around or trajectories to or around the Moon, effectively demilitarizing the void space around the Moon, which was the first time such provision was made. However, the low number of state ratifications of the Moon Agreement limits the impact of that treaty. 1979 also saw the establishment of the Conference on Disarmament, the only formal forum for multilateral disarmament negotiation. In 1985, the Conference on Disarmament established the Committee on the Prevention of an Arms Race in Outer Space for the purpose of negotiations in order to conclude an agreement to prevent a general arms race in outer space. The committee was tasked with examining issues relevant to the prevention of an arms race in outer space and relevant existing agreements on the topic. It was also intended to consider future initiatives and proposals on the issue. However, as a result of member states' detailed elaboration and reiteration of their respective positions, there was very little progress made towards the drafting of a binding treaty framework. The opinions of member states were particularly divided over the definition of the weaponization of space as opposed to the military use of space. The weaponization of space was considered to refer specifically to the deployment of weapons in outer space in order to attack, destroy or damage space objects, as well as persons and objects on the Earth. However, there was little agreement as to the types of space weapons that the term would include. One of the greatest difficulties in this regard was the distinction between ground-based ballistic missile defence systems and anti-satellite weapons systems. Ground-based ballistic missile defence systems could attack and destroy satellites in outer space and would therefore be included in the term space weapons. However, such systems are essential components in many national defence and military strategies, and proposals to include these systems in the general discussion on the prevention of an arms race in outer space only served to obstruct negotiations. In 1985, the Soviet Union declared that it had started a moratorium on the stationing of anti-satellite weaponry in outer space in 1983. It also declared that it would abide by that moratorium as long as other states would act in the same way. In 1989, the Soviet Union again unilaterally declared that it would not be the first to place weapons in outer space. Since then, many states have made such no-first-weapons placement statements, including Argentina, Belarus, Brazil, Cuba, Indonesia, Kazakhstan and Russia. In 1992, the Soviet Union and the United States concluded the most comprehensive demilitarization treaty on outer space when they agreed on the Treaty on the Limitation of Anti-Ballistic Missile Systems, or the ABM Treaty. Article 5, Paragraph 1 of the ABM Treaty provided that both states' parties agreed not to develop, test or deploy ABM systems or components which are sea-based, air-based or space-based, or mobile land-based. However, this treaty was terminated in 2002 upon the withdrawal of the United States. In 2002, a joint proposal on the text for a draft treaty on the prevention of the deployment of weapons in outer space and the threat or use of force against outer space objects was put forward to the Conference on Disarmament by China and Russia. Iterations of the proposed texts were put forward in 2008 and 2014. The text of the proposals includes a prohibition on the testing, deployment or use in outer space of any weapons against objects in outer space or on the Earth. 
2014 proposal prohibits the placement of any weapons in outer space and the resort to the threat or use of force against space objects of states' parties to the treaty. The United States criticized the scope of the 2008 and 2014 proposals on the basis that they did not include the research, development, testing, production or deployment of ground-based anti-satellite weapon systems, and also that there was no compliance verification system in the proposal. On the 25th of November 2002, the International Code of Conduct Against the Proliferation of Ballistic Missiles, known as the Hague Code of Conduct, opened for signature. One of the most significant transparency and confidence-building efforts outside of the Conference on Disarmament, the Code of Conduct encourages subscribing states to commit themselves to public notifications of launches ahead of launches and test flights of ballistic missiles and space launch vehicles. Despite its non-binding status, the United Nations General Assembly has affirmed the importance of the Hague Code of Conduct in numerous resolutions. As of June 2016, 138 states were subscribed to the Hague Code of Conduct. However, its membership does not include certain states active in outer space, such as Brazil, China, India, Iran, Israel and the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. On the 18th of December 2006, the United Nations General Assembly adopted Resolution 6175, requesting the submission of concrete proposals on transparency and confidence-building measures in relation to outer space activities. In response, in September of 2007, Portugal submitted a proposal on behalf of the European Union, elaborating on a code of conduct of such measures. Subsequently, the European Union adopted a draft Code of Conduct for Space Activities in December 2008, revising it in October 2010 and June of 2012. In June 2012, prompted by calls from other states, including the United States, efforts began to make the Code of Conduct an international one. Based on a multilateral exchange of views, the Code was further revised to encourage responsible behaviour in outer space, so as to enhance safety, security and sustainability in outer space. The last multilateral meetings took place in June and July of 2015. Although the substantive content of the International Code of Conduct is relatively settled, procedural issues have prevented the Code from being finalised. The International Code of Conduct recommends transparency measures including concrete notification, information exchange and consultation mechanisms as well as familiarization and expert visits to launches and to launch sites. In 2011, the United Nations Secretary-General established a group of governmental experts on outer space in fulfillment of requests made by the UN General Assembly in its resolution of 8 December 2010. This group of governmental experts was tasked with conducting a study and submitting a report on concrete proposals for transparency and confidence-building measures to the General Assembly in 2013. A wide range of states and other entities were invited to participate in the study. The resulting report included recommendations on information exchange on space security methods and other technical data, notifications of high-risk re-entry events, emergency situations and other intentional uh, orbital breakups, as well as open access to launch sites. As of the date of this recording, negotiations continue in various fora, with no end date or formal conclusion in sight. In the next part of the lecture, we turn to the legal issues surrounding the international transfer of military space technology. 
Space activities involve state-of-the-art technology and advanced scientific capabilities in every phase, from the design and manufacture of spacecraft and launch vehicles to their launch operations, maintenance and end-of-life processes. The dual-use nature of these technologies, the crucial strategic, economic and military importance of space assets, and the fact that only a handful of states have direct access to outer space today, mean that the international transfer of space technology remains very restricted. The inescapable fact is that the same technology that launches payloads and spacecraft into orbit is the means of delivery of weapons of mass destruction. In 1987, the Missile Technology Control Regime, or MTCR, was established by a few like-minded states in order to prevent the proliferation of uncrewed delivery systems for weapons of mass destruction. The regime aimed to coordinate national export control frameworks and to create common export policy guidelines, as well as a coherent list of controlled items. This list of controlled items, called the MTCR Equipment, Software and Technology Annex, consists of two categories. Category 1 items include complete rocket systems, including ballistic missile systems and space launch vehicles capable of launching a payload weighing half a ton at least 300 kilometers the manufacturing and production facilities, as well as major subsystems thereof. Member states are to implement stringent export control for Category 1 items, with a strong presumption to deny their export. The export of Category 1 items is generally prohibited unless there is a bilateral, legally binding guarantee that the assured use of the items is in accordance with the MTCR guidelines and the recipient state assumes responsibility that the items will be used exclusively as agreed. Category 2 items include certain complete rocket systems and unmanned aerial vehicles, as well as a range of military and dual-use equipment, material and technologies. Member states are granted discretion in deciding on export licenses for these items on a case-by-case -case basis. Moreover, the MTCR guidelines specify that the transfer of items not in any of the two categories is also subject to the authorization process it envisages when an exporter is informed by the competent authority that the item, if exported, may be used in the production of a delivery system for a weapon of mass destruction, or where the exporter is aware that the item in question is intended to contribute to the delivery of a weapon of mass destruction. These catch-all provisions have also been implemented in other export control regimes, such as the Nuclear Suppliers Group. In 1996, the Vasanar Arrangement on Export Controls for Conventional Arms and Dual-Use Goods and Technologies was established. The Vasanar Arrangement aimed to prevent accumulations of conventional weapons through the enhancement of transparency and the imposition of greater responsibility in transfers of conventional arms and dual-use goods and technologies. Participant states implement the processes and policies embodied in the Vasanar arrangement through their national laws and policies. The decision whether or not to transfer any particular item or technology remains the sole responsibility of the state. Controlled items and technologies in relation to space activities are listed by the Vasanar arrangement, consisting of category 1 to 9 items, the sensitive list, the very sensitive list, and the munitions list. These lists are updated regularly in order to take into account novel technology. 
Examples of space-based items and technologies that are included on these lists are global navigation satellite systems and their related technology in Category 7 on navigation and avionics, and liquid, solid and hybrid rocket propellant systems in Category 9 on aerospace and propulsion. As well, there have been numerous resolutions by the United Nations Security Council that relate to the control of the international transfer of space-related materials and technologies. Unlike most General Assembly resolutions, Security Council resolutions are legally binding. Examples include Security Council Resolution 1540 of the 29th of April 2004, which was aimed at preventing the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction and their means of delivery. Pursuant to Resolution 1540, United Nations member states are to maintain effective border controls and national export and transshipment controls. Another more recent example is Security Council Resolution 1718 of the 14th of October 2006, the first in a series of resolutions that demand that the Democratic People's Republic of Korea not conduct any further nuclear test or any launch using ballistic missile technology. Aside from disarmament and arms control, international law also governs the use of force in outer space. Article 3 of the Outer Space Treaty provides that states' parties shall carry on activities in the exploration and use of outer space in accordance with international law, including the Charter of the United Nations, in the interest of maintaining international peace and security and promoting international cooperation and understanding. Therefore, the Charter of the United Nations applies to activities in outer space. This means that the prohibition on the use of force in Article 2, Paragraph 4 of the Charter applies equally to outer space, as do the exceptions to that prohibition as provided for in Article 51 and Chapter 7 of the Charter. As the outer space theatre becomes increasingly essential in modern warfare, the question arises, when the use of force in outer space occurs, does the law of armed conflict also apply? Some publicists and commentators have raised doubts as to the applicability of the law of armed conflict to space-based military operations. Some have pointed to the geographic scope in the titles and texts of many law of armed conflict treaties. For example, the 1907 Hague Convention respecting the laws and customs of war on land, and the 1907 Hague Convention concerning bombardment by naval forces in time of war. Articles 2 and 3 of the Geneva Conventions, the two provisions defining international armed conflict and non-international armed conflict, respectively, contain express references to the territory of states' parties. Moreover, the 1977 Additional Protocol 1 to the 1949 Geneva Convention also refers only to conflict on land, at sea or in the air, effectively excluding outer space from its scope of application. Indeed, some scholars have also argued that not only are the conventional laws of armed conflicts inapplicable to outer space, but the customary principles of the law of armed conflict are neither sufficiently specific nor entirely appropriate for application to military action in outer space. The general objections to the applicability of express rules of the law of armed conflict to outer space activities may be understandable, but should not be overstated. Arguments based on the Lotus principle that, without express rules to the contrary, states are free to act as they please, cannot be the end of the consideration as to whether the laws of armed conflict apply to outer space. There is international jurisprudence to show that earlier international law applies to novel technology. 
in its advisory opinion on the legality of the use or threat of use of nuclear weapons, the International Court of Justice had no difficulty in applying the Charter of the United Nations in respect of nuclear weapons. Despite the fact that at the time the Charter was drafted, many of the issues relating to nuclear weapons technology had not been foreseen. The international community took the same approach in regards of cyberspace. Now, indeed, Article 3 of the Outer Space Treaty in providing for the application of international law to space activities also takes the same approach. It has been correctly pointed out that the correct interpretative approach will depend on the source of the law in question. In relation to treaties, for example, it is clear from the full title of the Hague Regulations that its provisions were to apply solely to the land territory of states' parties. However, the use of space-based assets to cause death or injury of enemy combatants on land by treachery would be a breach of Article 23, Paragraph B of the 1907 Hague Regulations. Another example is the interpretation of the Geneva Conventions which, in their first article, provides that states' parties are to respect the conventions in all circumstances. This has been interpreted to include areas outside of the territory of states' parties, for example, on the high seas. The same interpretation would apply so that the provisions of the Geneva Convention would also apply to outer space. Article 1 of the Outer Space Treaty proclaims that the exploration and use of outer space shall be carried out for the benefit and in the interests of all countries and shall be the province of all mankind. The preamble and Article 4 provide that the exploration and use of outer space is to be for peaceful purposes. To the extent that the use of force occurs in outer space, however, it is essential that there is a framework of rules that apply to the exercise of force if armed conflict is to occur in outer space. Constraints on armed conflict imposed by international law should apply to outer space. As the International Committee of the Red Cross stated, any hostile use of outer space in armed conflict, that is, any use of means and methods of warfare in, from, to or through outer space, must comply with international humanitarian law. The laws of armed conflict serve to govern and moderate conduct in armed conflict, which in and of itself is an important factor in the preservation of outer space for peaceful purposes. Referring to a photograph of the Earth as seen from outer space, in which the Earth appears as a pale blue dot, Carl Sagan wrote, The Earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. Think of the endless cruelties visited by the inhabitants of one corner of this pixel on the scarcely distinguishable inhabitants of some other corner, how frequent their misunderstandings, how eager they are to kill one another, how fervent their hatreds. Think of the rivers of blood spilled by all those generals and emperors so that, in glory and triumph, they could become the momentary masters of a fraction of a dot. The paradox of outer space as a theatre for military and strategic uses is that, on the one hand, when seen from outer space, the political boundaries that separate us disappear, and our home planet appears in all its delicate, fragile, desolate beauty. On the other hand, the nature of outer space is such that humanity could completely annihilate itself in mutually assured destruction through warfare in outer space. International law is one means by which conflict avoidance can be achieved through transparency and confidence-building mechanisms, as well as through rules that preserve the outer space environment for peaceful purposes. The legacy of international space law in regulating the military use of outer space is that it allows us to become the momentary masters of our species' instinct for bringing conflict into each new arena of exploration. 
The preservation of outer space as the province of mankind is the lasting heritage of international space law. Thank you.